out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Adele Bertai, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. All the way, well, she started in Cleveland, was in various bands with various musicians that she'll be talking about, so I won't bore you too much, but then went to New York, was part of uh, James Chance, one the Contortions, and uh, worked with such people as Brian Ferry in that interesting world that was the no-wave scene from, yes, New York City, went to Berlin and did lots of other things in the world that is film, music and writing. And that, also, dear listener, leads me to her latest project, which is that um, she's just written a book titled Why LaBelle Matters. This has come out, it's a series of books which are under the title of Music Matters, and there's going to be Why Marianne Faithful Matters, um, Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Anyway, enough of that. This is actually, they're out on the University of Texas publishing, and also in the UK, some of them are going to be published by Faber and Faber, but um, we'll find out more about that. But the interview is going to be broken up to lots about her own personal life before coming on to the world that is LaBelle that very exciting funk trio from the early 70s. But um, anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat with Adele, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Adele, tell us more. Tell us now. Um, probably back in, I, I would say around 73, 74. I mean, I was listening to Motown and uh, early rock and roll back in those days, you know. Um, but I, I grew up in reformatories, so I was well, surrounded by black girls, which is very odd in America because all of our cities were highly segregated. So I was kind of like the white anomaly because I was raised with black girls. Right. Um, so that culture was very important to me, you know, uh, growing up. And um, I grew up with black music and singing gospel. And then I guess when I, you know, it was probably when I st- discovered David Bowie that I started really getting into rock and roll. And then right. the Underground and then Lou Reed and, you know, which, and these were all groups that, you know, people that were kind of precursors to the punk movement. You know, the glam movement was, was pre-punk. Yes. So, so yeah, in, in 1975, I hooked up with a guy who created, in Cleveland, who created a band called Per Ubu. I don't know if you know of them. Yes. Uh, yeah. Pete, isn't it? Pete Tom. Peter Luckner, his name was. Right, not the other guy who's still in Per, per Ubu. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's David Thomas. David, David Thomas. Thomas. I've done an interview with Dave. Oh, a few years ago. So he he mentioned about Cleveland and I think working on the local paper and then sort of forming the band. Right. Yes. Yeah. Kind of early movement that uh, he was part of, really. So, um, yes, and still going to this day. But yeah, so Peter, is it Loftner? Yes. 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 So he was Uh the, he was the slightly, he was the legendary Cleveland musician, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was a bad boy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and at that yeah. stage it was kind of interesting because obviously David Bowie and thankfully because my you know glam was kind of the thing that I was really into when I was very young watching Top of the Pops and then mm-hmm. it was space thankfully it was Space Oddity and uh, David Bowie that was my first single and my first love which you kind of can't you know you can't have another you can't have a second you can have a second love but you, you stick with the first love it, yeah. it could have been Gary Glitter which would have been horrendous but <laughs> Um, yes, it was, it, was, it, was, it would have been close though, because I was kind of wanted to be in Gary's gang when I was about eight, which would have been disastrous. But, yeah. you know, Bowie was the one, and then I got, you know, the B-side had changes, and Velvet Goldmine, I thought, God, B-sides are really good. I, it just kind of went downhill mm-hmm. after that, didn't it, really? So luckily, and then it was changes one Bowie, and then it was this kind of, you know, obsession with him, which I've had for the rest of my life. So, yeah, so <laughs> David. So what yeah. was the, your David moment that, that sort of did something to you? The Bowie moment for me was, um, well, of course, it was the Ziggy Stardust, the, the first Ziggy Stardust show in Cleveland, which I believe was like 73. 
Mm -hmm. I'm kind of bad with years and dates, but um, I saw that show and was of course blown away. But then what really solidified it for me was the Diamond Dogs tour. When he had this full on theatrical presentation, he brought it to this beautiful jewel box uh, theater in Cleveland. And, um, you know, he came out, he had, he had built a, a set that looked like a, a cityscape at, at, of New York at night. Yes, absolutely. He came out on, on the, of this balcony in a green sequined dress. And he had two sailors in a street, you know, on, in a circle of light on, on the center stage in a, in a street lamp light, dancing this beautiful dance. It was so homoerotic and so theatrical. <laughs> and I, I just thought, oh my God, this, this is this is what rock and roll can be, I'm in, you know? Hold on one second, I have to let my dog out because she's oh, whining. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, come on, let's go. Come on. Um, so, so yes, that was my moment. Uh, that was um, definitely a good moment, actually. And, did uh, it, and it, at that stage, had you ever sort of had dreams of sort of becoming, or not becoming, but sort of playing an instrument or, you know singing or anything like that yeah when I was young um you know I had a rather turbulent uh childhood so uh music was always uh, kind of a life raft for me singing and you know growing up listening to some of the great like crooners um uh and seeing people on on Ed Sullivan too people like Anthony Newley oh yes I mean <laughs> loved Anthony Newley and you know and then there was people like Dionne Warwick and Dusty Springfield and so I fell in love with the power of their voices and uh, you know it was very soothing to know that um, you know I had a lot of loss as a child and music was something nobody can take away from me. Yes well absolutely. So, so it was very much you know a life raft for me as a kid. So yeah. you must have been having one horrendous because by the by the sort of mid mid 70s you you were obviously had sort of your childhood had probably been quite horrendous actually yeah yeah it was <laughs> and I was uh, I was emancipated at uh, 17 and got got my first job at a Ford Motors factory um was working on the assembly line and bought my first guitar and and you know soon after that I met Peter and we we hung out together and started playing music together, but um, he was incredibly self-destructive and an alcoholic. And, you know, um, he was very wrapped up in, in a mythology that he was creating for himself about being this kind of aggressive punk. Yeah. When, in, when in reality, he was really kind of a singer songwriter, Dylan, you know, type of guy. And, um, you know, he had a lot of conflicts and didn't know how to resolve them. and basically committed a slow suicide through drinking and drugs. You know? Yes. And were the two of you, I mean, was it kind of almost a relationship, you know, like two kindred spirits who were sort of needed each other that, that yeah. sort of just kind of gravitated naturally as you do. When you look back at these things at the time, you can never see these yeah. patterns, can you? But my God, yeah. in hindsight, you go, yes, it was so obvious mm -hmm. where, where people start sort of, you can see it with young people and also mm -hmm. old people as well who kind of repeat the same mistakes. Well, not mistakes, but you know, the same patterns, isn't it really? Right. So that must have been quite an extraordinary experience because obviously, you know, it does sound a bit like a Bruce Springsteen song, doesn't it? Sort of working on the assembly, the Ford assembly line and yes. sort of falling in love with the musician that's going to take you away, which is almost <laughs> part of the story, but then it all goes, <laughs> goes arse up, doesn't it? As these things often do not in Bruce Springsteen songs but you know just generally so did you stay in Cleveland because in in 75 77 you know punk punk was really sort of happening you had the New York Dolls then you had the the Damned in the UK and then obviously the Sex Pistols 76 and various other bands so we you know was Cleveland a place that you wanted to get out of um, definitely. I mean, Peter, when, when Peter and I were roommates and we were making music together, our plan really was to move to New York City because everything was going on there. You had Patti Smith and television and Talking Heads and all these great, great bands. Um, and it was the place for music and it was the place for women in music as well. There were a lot of women that came from all over the world, actually, to New York City in about 77. 
uh, yes. to music, you know. Um, so that was our plan, but then he died unexpectedly when he was 24 years old. And um, he died in June of 1977. And by August, I had moved to New York. I was out. I left yeah. Cleveland. My God. Were you yeah. relieved that you weren't in Cleveland when he died? Kind of, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I had gone to New York on a weekend. Uh, when when uh, it was Lester Bangs that told me he had died, I was at CBGB's one evening, and and uh, yeah, Lester told me he died, and I went back to New York, went to his funeral, and began packing stuff up to to go, to move to New York. Yes, because was, yeah. yeah, because from that scene, I mean, because there was kind of members like from there's a band called Art, wasn't there? Who was sort of. Uh, in New York, yeah, but yeah, Nina Canal. Kind of and then you had Z Records as well, which was kind of yes. the, the avant-garde record label. I did an interview with Michael from the label um, uh -huh. quite recently. He had a green parrot next to him who, who went on to great things in the, <laughs> in the world of business. I think he uh -huh. lost him. He made and lost a fortune in his time, but he was such a nice guy. I loved his oh, green lovely, parrot. Yeah. And, lovely, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting musical moment because it's a scene which I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by both kind of, to be honest, I I kind of want to like it more than I do. You know, it's one of those kind of, because it, it's kind of, it sound looks so good. And you had this kind of whole thing with, you know, Roxy Music's Brian Eno, who sort of all got, got involved in there. And you get these compilations on soul jazz records. And and you became part of, of, of the scene with James Chance, didn't you? And the contortions. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I joined contortions. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, how did that sort of meeting come together? Um, I uh, moved to New York in August and immediately went over to, to visit a friend uh, named Bradley Fields, who was the drummer in Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, which was literally a lunches band. Yeah. And, um, and the contortions, James was just starting the contortions and the bands rehearsed at this loft where Bradley and Lydia lived. And I saw James and a couple people playing music and I sat down at the drums with them. And it ended up turning into James Chance asking me to play keyboards in the contortions. So very quickly, I, I became a member of the band, and you know we started doing gigs um, in the, in late 1977. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And did you? I mean, it might be a really stupid question. Did you get to um, work with Brian? You know, in in this. I did. I did. Oh. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was early 1978, I became Brian Eno's personal assistant. He needed an assistant. He came to New York. And um, I took him around to a lot of the uh, no-wave bands. That's what we were called in those days. And uh, including Ut and theoretical girls and a lot of bands that people haven't really heard of. But Brian decided he wanted the Contortions, Teenage Jesus, Mars and a band called DNA to do a record with him. Right. Um, you know, he produced the record No New York at that time. Yes. God, who's the main guy in DNA? Uh, Arto Lindsay. No, Arto Lindsay. There was another character I interviewed recently. Uh, Tim Wright, maybe? Tim Wright? He was the bass player? Robin Crutchfield. That's the one. <laughs> he was the keyboard player, yes. The, I should have, I, I sort of didn't realize I was going to need all this information before. At my age, you kind of, it's all a bit sketchy, isn't it? Yes. So that must have felt like a, quite a way because also you had sort of um, CBGBs, but you also had Max's Kansas City and in that whole world of Robert Maplethorpe and Andy Warhol, which is also quite interesting because there was also some bizarre kind of psychobilly kind of stuff that would come from the UK over to New York, which was brought there by Lee Black Childers, who was kind of another character on the scene. So were you kind of also meeting that? And also Klaus Nomi, did, was that a kind of world that you all sort of slightly sort of gravitating towards? Yes, I mean, Klaus I knew, um, and he played at Max's a lot. Um, the Warhol scene, there were crossovers, but it was funny because we know waivers used to make fun of the Warholians, you know, we, they'd be in the back, the back room, which was infamous at, at Max's Kansas City to, you know, for drugs and all kinds of VIP carryings on, but you know, Lydia and myself and a few of us would go back there and shoot spitballs at Warhol in his, at his table of, of you know, superstars. It was quite funny. Yes. We were, 
we were like the, the nasty little punks making fun of the Warholians. <laughs> and were the mumps around New York as well? Yes. Yeah, the mumps were around. It was Lance Loud and Christian Hoffman. And yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there was so much, so much variety and fun in those days in terms of the music. You know, there was this very angsty, crazy, brutalist music of No Wave, but then there was Z Records and Kid Creole and the Coconuts and you know, um, the mumps and Klaus Nomi. So it was kind of all over the place. And, and a lot of women like Lizzie Mercier, who was uh, signed to Z Records, French, uh, a French artist who was absolutely brilliant. If you haven't yes. heard of her, you should listen. Really, I think it's really. her, her song Fire. That's the one that gets yes. quite a lot of, yeah. That, that is, be, um, yeah, yeah. Do, and I also do envy her. She has an amazing hairstyle as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she she's, got, she's got more than just a good hairstyle, I know, but frankly, you know, <laughs> when you were being in lockdown, you just got a haircut. You know? No, she had this like mane of hair and it would always kind of fall into her face and she'd have to shake it out, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the record you should listen to if you have a chance is called Zulu Rock. Right. And she went down to South Africa and recorded it with just brilliant South African musicians and she did that before Paul Simon uh, did Graceland. So I've always right. thought it was Paul Simon that heard her record and kind of followed suit and went down to South Africa, you know? Yes, that's kind of interesting. And at that stage, I mean, you know, because New York also gets that kind of like, wow, there was the sort of the mafia sort of push, pushing a lot of heroin there. You know, yeah. it was kind of quite bankrupt as well. So there was... There was this kind of like, blimey, that's kind of desolate place. And I think that even the president was kind of thinking, let's just kind of brush it, brush it away somehow. Oh, it'll just, yeah. it'll collapse. But out of that, you know, was the birth of kind of almost punk, you know, and um, there's still a bit of debate there, isn't there? Don't mention that to Johnny Rotten. And uh, the <laughs> rap music and disco. I mean, so there is this kind of like, wow, out of, the, out of this horrendous kind of wasteland is, is kind of this scene. But then heroin at that stage, you, you get some, you know, like horrendous scenes and people like Johnny Thunders and that kind of world where everyone suddenly gets very strung out. So how did you manage to navigate those kind of, kind of, I don't know, temptations, I suppose? Well, you know, it was, it was really rough because initially when I moved there in 77, the great thing about New York as, as destitute as it was, is you could live on pennies. I mean, it was great for artists of all kinds, for musicians, because you didn't really have to work. I mean, if you had a band and you played out, you could make enough money to pay your rent. Wow. Um, just an impossibility today. But uh, uh, what happened was uh, eventually heroin was just ubiquitous. It was everywhere. You couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a heroin dealer, you know? And people started getting strung out and um, our bass player, George Scott, in the contortions, uh, OD'd on heroin. Uh, several people became addicted. Um, it kind of ruined my all-girl band. Um, so, you know, there, was, there were problems. I, I was able to um, avoid going down that dark road, which is, yeah. you know, I feel very fortunate that uh, I didn't take, you know, didn't go that, that way. Amazing, because I think I think it was an artist called, or uh, yeah, an artist, a musician called Anne Magnuson, and I think she managed to stay completely clean. Yes. And 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 a quite a, yes. a few people did say just like they just were never drugs, just wasn't ever going to be their thing. So that was kind of phenomenally fortunate. Because I guess at the time it's a bit like when my mum was pregnant in the fifties, she was kind of offered that uh, drug, the thalidomide drug, because, you know, like having, mm. you know, labor pains and all that, um, yeah, sort of pregnancy pains and all that. And it was like, oh, you can take this and you won't have any pains. And she was like, I'm not quite sure, which was kind of amazingly lucky. But at the time, you know, it's like, oh my God, that was offered to you. And it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah. and I guess, you know, from decades later, heroin was almost the same. It's like, God, this is as cheap as alcohol. And it makes you feel great. It's so funny you, you bring up that thing about thalidomide or whatever it's called, because Call the Midwife. Did you ever watch that show, Call the Midwife? It's a British show. Um, it's a British show that uh, takes place in the 1950s and 60s in the East End of London. But um, they did a whole episode about women who were given that drug and were, you know, what was happening to the babies they were having. So nice. just, yeah, horrible. But yeah. anyway. But interestingly enough, Lemmy from Motorhead 
who was you know incredibly into speed and LSD and, and obviously Jack Daniels was really against heroin from from you know and I was thinking that was always quite amazing it's always amazed me that you know in that world of wanting to take you know as many drugs and drink as possible you know there's one thing that you just had that like no I'm not going to do that because in hindsight everything's kind of easy but at the time you think that's quite extraordinary that you had that kind of he had that sort of no that's not my bag right right well you know it killed a lot of people it um, definitely killed you know uh, way too young took too many people out you know yes absolutely and just kind of briefly because i mean your career is quite extraordinary how did you manage to find yourself getting to berlin during the sort of 80s because it's quite uh, a amazing jump um actually not not what's really interesting to me about uh new york london and berlin at the time is that in new york our scene was very much a cross collaboration between filmmakers, painters, writers, and musicians. And that wasn't the case in London so much, but it was in Berlin. So in many ways, Berlin was the, was the uh, sister city to New York in terms of the art scene that was going on. And there was a fellow named Martin Kippenberger, um, uh, artist from Berlin who came to New York at that time and looked at the bands and, and brought us over to Berlin uh, to play gigs. And uh, I ended up staying there for quite a bit. And I was, uh, I guess Iggy Pop was on tour and his drummer gave me the keys to his apartment on Hofstrasse. So I was staying there and meeting all these brilliant artists and musicians in Berlin. Um, people like Malaria and Rainer Fetich and um, it was a very exciting scene in Berlin. Oh God, that's that is extraordinary. Within ten years, you did, you did jump from sort of, yes, Cleveland to New York to Berlin. That is quite yeah. something, actually. Quite, quite, and to quite, London, and, and to London. London, and to Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham, yes, I don't know. Yeah, it's got it's got its glamour, hasn't it? But interesting with Berlin is that, and I was a bit fascinated because a friend's brother went there with a lot of other people who decided to go and discover Berlin for themselves from the UK. And um, so we went to visit a few times and I didn't realize that everybody had to do national service in Berlin, um, in Germany, unless uh -huh. you went to Berlin. So all the sort of, uh, not all, but a lot of the kind of artistic, not dropouts, but you know, left of center and far left of center all went, mm -hmm. well, I'm not gonna do um, national service. I'm just gonna go over to Berlin. And and so it did create, you know, within this kind I'm of- I'm sorry, you're region. frozen. Can you hear oh, me? Yes, I'm, I'm still with you. Did you hear any of that? Are you still there? Hello? Hello? Oh, I can hear your dog. Hi. Yeah, you can hear, hear my dog, but I couldn't hear you for a minute because you froze. I'm so sorry. No, Dave. that's fine. That's fine. I'm back. What were you saying now? Oh, yes, about national um, Germany and national service. Right. So everyone had to do right. national service in Germany unless you lived in Berlin. So a lot of people obviously went, actually, I'm just going to go and live in Berlin. And that's going to be, you know, I'm going to escape that kind of two two years of my life having to do, you know, marching up and down with a machine gun probably. So that's probably why there was a gravity you know you know gravitational pull towards one city and also it, it you know i visited berlin a couple of times in the 80s and it did have this amazing vibe and the one thing that happened just briefly but this friend's brother said look you got, just go out at night you won't get beaten up and it's like really that's amazing and you're walking <laughs> around the city and it was yeah. like all these old people and just hundreds of people on the street and he thought no, we won't get beaten up. We could get beaten up in our small little town, you know, which has got a few hundred people, but, you know, three or four kind of like horrible lads, but you won't get beaten up in Berlin. And um, I always remember him saying that and thinking, well, I'm still going to be very careful. But at the same time, there were just a lot of different types of people walking around the streets at night. So it felt quite safe. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, Berlin, um, before uh, the war, before Hitler, uh, in the Weimar period, I think there were more gay bars in, in Berlin than there ever were in any other place in the world. It was a very, very openly gay city. And um, yes. it's funny you say that about violence in London, because when I lived in London, uh, I was in a gay pub once and, and just saw these like like kind of skinhead guys come in and smash a glass on a, on a bartender's face. I mean, it was extremely violent. 
extremely, and it was very scary. So, um, and people would tell me, you know, um, guys in England can be quite thuggish. Oh God, uh, yeah, Jesus, I, went, I mean, in the 80s, it was horrendous. <laughs> it was, yeah, but, you know, yeah. I can see why Berlin, you know, and obviously David Bowie and Iggy went and shared a flat there. So that gave it a huge amount of kudos. But just, I know you've got this amazing book out, but just then as the 80s progressed, you, you also then, you're in a band called um, The Bloods, aren't you? And you do a single, mm -hmm. which John Peel loves, called Button Up, which is another little funky number. So obviously you, you sort of, is your heart in that sort of world of funk or is that just how it all happened? Um, it, yeah, it very much is. I mean, even the pop music that I've done has has like an element of funk to it. You know, I mean, I, it's in me. I can't really, I can't really deny it. You know, I have to, I have to use it when I when I do music. Um, yeah. So uh, I lived in London off and on for quite a while in the eighties, and um, I worked with Scritti Politti, did a single with them called When It's Over, but because of record company mess ups the single was never properly released which was such a shame but it's on it's on youtube i think right um but you know as as here's the problem as an out gay woman i had a lot of of problems in the corporate music business when i got when i got signed to major labels and um you know their vision of a woman as artist in the 80s was um not not open to who I was authentically so it was really hard for me yes you know? it was kind of weird because that period there was kind of um there was the mainstream charts but then we in in sort of during that period you know we got you know people like Susan Vega came along and then Tracy Chapman and Michelle Shock and then right. Sinead O'Connor so things did slightly change and there was a the indie pop world that I was obsessed with Again, you know, there were bands like Everything But The Girl. I mean, there was, a, you know, Ben and Tracy. Um, yeah. And then there'd been the Raincoats and, and obviously the Marine Girls in the early 80s. But yeah, you're yeah. right. They're, they're probably the whole world of sexuality was still a thing that, you know, people from all walks of life were definitely worried about anything coming out because the tabloids would get hold of it and destroy yeah. their career. And, and we'd had, you know, George, uh, Boy George, who'd obviously... Had a lot of issues and it's sort of the 80s mm -hmm. didn't finish well with him did it really but um yeah it must have been a really odd period because we can't and we couldn't imagine what it would be like but i yes you talking about it made me think oh yeah god of course it was do, do you re do you remember helen terry who sang with boy george yes i mean they the the, the british press of eviscerated her because she was gay um, they just completely killed her career. It was just awful what happened to her. And she she had such a great voice. Her first album was so good, you know? Yes. And um, I do remember the communards as well and Jimmy Summerville. Yeah. So, yeah. But it, it was it was a very, yeah, it was a very angsty time, you know, the 80s. Yeah. I mean, it was some amazing music. And obviously you you did sort of have those kind of moments, though, of, of sort of going from... Cleveland to the sort of New York kind of very sort of no way to suddenly artists who were sort of mega big at that time so did how were you coping with those kind of like brushes with sort of people like Jelly Bean and Tears for Fears and and sort of working with people like Sophie Hawkins oh god have I frozen hello 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 Hello, I'm sorry I lost you again. <laughs> story of my life. No, but I, I, I did you hear what um, I would? I just mentioned that you'd been working with people like Jelly Bean, who at the time was huge, wasn't he? Because he'd been working with people like Madonna, and then you'd also worked with. You mentioned Squiddy Politti, Squiddy Politti, and also Tears yeah. of Fears and Sari, uh, Sophie Hawkins. So how did um, how were you coping with that kind of part of your career? Well, you know, there was, there was, uh, you know, I, I, I did guest on a couple of hits, like I did Hyper, Hyperactive with Thomas Dolby, that was me singing, and um, Jelly Bean, I did a single with him called Just a Mirage that was, I think it charted pretty high in England, like possibly top 10, yes. and I was on top of the pops, and so, you know, I did enjoy some successes in the 80s, uh, and um and early 90s, which, you know, were, it was a lot of fun. But as a solo artist, it was just too difficult for me to navigate. 
um, because I was out of the closet and I was very strong-willed and, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't play good girl. It was very hard for me to um, bend to the will of the record companies. Yes, it would have been, it would be very, because I did, I sort of spoke to Ava Cherry, who'd worked with David Bowie on his kind of uh, Young Americans kind of gig. And then when she finished that period, you know, trying for her, I have no idea about her sexuality, actually. but, you know, <laughs> trying to sort of create, uh, you know, a solo career after that was really difficult because it was like, apart from that whole issue of sexuality, it's, it's kind of like, where do you one go for the sand? I mean, what, you know, because the charts were changing so much in the 80s as well, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. we had sort of the mainstream charts, then we had the indie charts, and then we had rave culture and then grunge came comes along so it's kind of trying to figure out where people fit and then you have that kind of club scene as well so your heart was probably not really into out and out club music was it it wasn't really and th this is something also that you know is very hard for female artists if you don't fit into a specific genre the the record companies don't know what to do with you you know and um i've always embraced a lot of different types of music like for instance, I loved when Mark Almond was doing his cabaret type stuff, you know. Yes. Um, so I'm equally drawn to kind of the the chanson realiste, like chanteuses that sing about, you know, the common man, as, just as much as I am like doing something extremely funky, like a LaBelle track, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I think I found a happy medium where I can now write books and when I'm when I want to do music, I can do it without having to be to toe the line for a, a, a corporate record company, you know? Yes. Well, I think I think everybody I sort of speak to, you know, who's made, you know, music in, you know, with that idea of being on a label and trying to sort of tick these boxes and mm -hmm. realizing, A, they've either slightly made it and then it's finished or they never quite, but they did, but not, you know, like huge. I mean, they're independent artists who might have done well but you know it didn't go fantastic and then sort of other things happen and now they just play basically what I'm trying to say is now they play, play music that they want to play for themselves yeah. and whoever wants to listen without them thinking god you know how do we try and write a hit and how do I make lots of money it's like actually just don't bother with that just enjoy, <laughs> just enjoy the art of making you know, something because you know exactly. it's just it's a pointless exercise and now you can make something that you feel really proud of rather than thinking because a lot of artists in the 80s, I'd noticed the people who were making music who were there in the 80s, mm -hmm. their zeitgeist period, were, you know, it was quite good, apart from the mainstream charts that had that Trevor Horn production. But the artists before the 80s who were quite big, and David Bowie being one, mm -hmm. their 80s work was a little bit hit and miss in places. And I think it was kind of difficult when people are trying to chase what their sound, trying to chase what the charts wants them to do, rather than them doing what they want to do. That's the okay. That's the yeah. but that leads on to your book, which is part of, which is part of this series of books as well, isn't it? On Patty Patty Labelle, which just so briefly, I mean, when did you get the idea to actually? When did you start to become a writer? Actually, because this is quite an amazing sort of moment, you know. Like it is quite an impressive thing. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I've been writing for years, but I've you know tucking everything into a secret drawer. But <laughs> but over the years, I've been writing and. And Why LaBelle Matters isn't really just about Patti LaBelle, it's about the trio um, of Nona Hendrix, Patti, and Sarah Dash, um, who started out as Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, which was a very conventional 1960s girl group. You know, they, they wore the bouffant dresses and the wigs and the, and the little pumps. And, um, you know, they were very, very conservative, uh, uh, the black girl groups of the 1960s all dressed to kind of assimilate into white culture and they all sang a specific kind of music. But as, as things started to change and, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and all these great bands were coming over from England, they were self-contained groups, they wrote their own music. And Vicki Wickham from Ready Steady Go, um, heard Patti LaBelle and, and the Bluebells, had them on Ready Steady Go, and um, she eventually became their manager and said, okay, this was in say 1970, 1971, she said, you guys have to change. 
you know, this style is going out. The British style is really happening. Um, you're black women, you have a lot to say politically and about your, you know, about your own sexuality as well. And uh, so it's like she uncovered everything that was kind of simmering inside of these bouffant wigs and they reinvented over in London and became just LaBelle, the three singers. And they, they you know, crafted this incredible harmony this, that nobody had ever heard before. It wasn't, it wasn't slick or soft or easy to digest. It was this kind of like brilliant, like gospel rage. Yeah. Uh, and it was just breathtaking. And the fact that they were together for 16 years and went through all of these changes and nobody had ever written about them. Nobody had ever written a book about um, LaBelle as a group. They'd written, you know, Patty's got, uh, Patty LaBelle has memoirs out, but nothing, nothing about LaBelle, the group, the three women that gave us Lady Marmalade and so many great, great, great records. Yes, absolutely. God, yeah, no wonder you, you got very kind of animated and excited with that. And it's quite interesting because during that time, Patty'd also, she'd sung with, um, is it Laura? Um, no, Laura Arrow? Yes, yeah, um, yes. that was LaBelle. That was Patty, Nona, and Sarah with LaBelle, with, with LaBelle, with, uh, I mean, with Laura Nero, sorry. Yes, and they do an amazing version of I Met Him on a Sunday, which yeah. is just stunning. And that's kind of, I yeah. think it was 71, isn't it? Where music, a lot of music was really changing from that. Um, it must have been a very strange time at the end of the 60s and sort of the next decade, because obviously most people, you know, get kind of tired and speaking to various people from that, you know, 60s period, you know, mm -hmm. after most bands I find have a five year narrative, you know, for various reasons. They get, you know, they have 12 months, which is a honeymoon phase where everything's so optimistic and then they, they manage to get a single. And, and especially in the 80s, you get a few specialist DJs. We had John Peel that would often give people a spin and then you get a John mm -hmm. Peel session, then the album, things are going really well. The second album, a bit tricky. Third album, often was that. And uh, <laughs> mainly because the, the dynamic within the band isn't great. There's been the lack of money and the lack yeah. of kind of like, oh my God, we just can't do this anymore. And we just, we're just not enjoying it. So often five years is it. But, you know, so a lot of that 60s scene did change quite a lot, you know, because a lot of people just looked out of date. So when, you know, LaBelle came along, it was kind of interesting. The Beatles had just finished and there weren't a lot. I mean, Janice had sadly died. And so, and Jefferson Airplane had slightly sort of finished as well, hadn't they? And it was the early years, I suppose, of people like Joni Mitchell and then eventually Carol King. So this must have been quite a radical look. And also they had the image, didn't they? They'd gone for glam. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they were, the, they were really the first women rock stars to dress up uh, and present as rock stars. You know, they had these incredibly beautiful uh, silver quilted spacesuits. And when they did their show for the Nightbirds album, um, they would descend on wires from the stage, <laughs> like flying in. I mean, it was incredible. And no other women had, had you know, done that before, presented with such rock star glam. Um, so, you know, they were the first in that aspect as well, which was yes. very, yeah. And doing the book, was, was there much that you started to uncover that you were thinking, wow, I had not kind of appreciated and understood that or just not ever heard about it? Well, 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 I knew that, you know, I knew that the music industry was very patriarchal and, you know, in their approach towards women artists. But I did find out some interesting things about how, you know, um, I mean, LaBelle had some very strong political songs that weren't offensive in any way, but they were provocative. But th there were bands like the Isley Brothers and Curtis Mayfield that were doing equally political, provocative songs during that period, and their records were being promoted and would shoot to the top 20, whereas LaBelle's records were buried. And I think it had a lot to do with them being women. Yes. Uh, you know, and I, I found out, yeah, I, I write about that in the book, like very specific instances where Stevie Wonder would come out with Living for the City and um, uh, LaBelle would come out with one of their political songs. And of course it got buried. 
So um, yeah, it, it was very, very uh, illuminating to see how those things worked throughout. Was the it year. the case a bit like, you know, we had three, you know, three degrees in, in the UK who did fantastically well and also there was Boeing again. Was it the, did you find that the pressure from the record label and manager was like, could we just go in this direction and sort of have that Philly sound and do some nice dance moves and talk about love and heartache? Mm -hmm. I think, I think um, Vicky was their manager, Vicky Wickham. She didn't, they all wanted to do more provocative music and they were determined to do that. Um, they didn't want to bend to corporate pressure, um, which is one of the reasons why I don't think more of their music was successful. I mean, Lady Marmalade, when you think about it, that song brought a, a hooker into every living room in the world, <laughs> practically, you know what I mean? So it was quite brazen that they were singing this song about sex and then it went, you know, it was in the top 10. Um, but there are other songs that had more political messages about being black in America and the oppressions that they were going through um, did not chart. So, you, you know, um, the Three Degrees didn't sing political songs, they sang love songs and sang them beautifully. I loved the Three Degrees. Yes. Uh, but, you know, some, some artists just, aren't willing to compromise that much. Um, yes, and I, th yeah. I, I, and I think when, you know, with certain artists, I mean, they can't fake it, you know, really. They, they right. know it's, it's not going to sort of be the thing that they really need. And other people probably are thinking, as long as we're on top of the pops, we don't mind. But, you know, right. that's not going to last particularly long either, isn't it? Because, you know, after 12 months, the scene changes and that person's not going to be kind of, you know, There'll be personnel changes at the record label and people go, right, just get rid of these guys, women, and let's get the new, you know, crop in. So that was, um, right. that was quite interesting. But the band, I mean, when they split up, was mm -hmm. it, was it a combination of just exhaustion and sort of dynamics between them? Um, the dynamics between them were very strong for 16 years. I mean, that's what kept them together was their friendship, you know, and their love for each other. But I think that the disappointments of doing, you know, three brilliant albums together and only having that one big hit um, started to wear on them. And I think they also wanted to go in slightly different directions as solo artists, you know. Nona uh, Hendricks wanted to go more into kind of like a funk dance uh, place. Um, and she was a little more avant-garde than Sarah and Nona. I mean, Sarah and Patty and Patty, you know, Patty's voice was extraordinary. I mean, Patty could sing, you know, Mary had a little lamb and it would sound brilliant. So, yes. <laughs> and she wanted to do more about more love ballads and things like that. Cause Nona was more the, the, uh, the, the, the visionary of the group. She was the writer, the songwriter for the most part. Yes. And Sarah wanted to go into dance as well. So they, you know, they each went their way um, but they ended up doing a comeback record. When was it? About maybe eight years ago, which was really great. Lenny Kravitz produced a few tracks for them. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good record. And I must admit, I, I sort of, again, it's one of those artists that you, know, you want to really love, but sometimes you're not always able to. Captain Beefheart. Track <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and it's kind of amazing because Nona, um, she does kind of work with a guy called, is it Gary Lucas, who worked, Gary with, Lucas. Who yeah. worked with Jeff Butley. And they, yeah. you know, she brought an album out of, of Captain's work, which, yeah. which I have to say was quite mesmerizing. So it's interesting thinking, blimey, yes, not many people, not many people have done that in their life. Exactly. And, um, I, I actually, uh, I, I prefer her version of Captain Beefheart's <laughs> music to, to his, Liette's, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So when they had the sort of the comeback, was it a case that they, you know, what, what initiated that sort of moment? Uh, probably just them missing each other and, and knowing, realizing that their voices sound so superb together, you know? I mean, when you, when you hear their blend, and, and, you know, harmony is not very popular these days. You don't hear harmony groups at all, you know? You don't hear... A, a Simon and Garfunkel or a Righteous Brothers or a Mamas and the Papas. It's very rare. Mm. Um, and, and I don't know why that is because whenever I play records where there's incredible harmonies, like a LaBelle record, like at a party or uh, at a, you know, an event, people love hearing it. 
So I don't understand why there's this kind of like prejudice against harmony these days, but, um, and their blend, it's just, their blend is magnificent. And I think they just missed each other and missed singing together, really. Yes, well, I suppose the fashion changed, didn't it? Because suddenly there was these kind of amazing singers, which I suppose were technically, technically amazing, you know, fantastic, who did mm -hmm. this kind of vocal gymnastics almost to, you know, mm -hmm. Mariah Carey and Beyonce, who you can tell was brilliant. But again, for my generation, you know, when they called it R&B, I was a bit confused. It took me a while. And then I thought, yeah, still not quite, you know, I still would rather listen to the, the Motown sound or, you know, LaBelle you know, people with harmonies, because it's kind of probably what I know best. <laughs> and you sort of go back to that, don't you, in a slightly old well, person sort of way. Yeah, we're old. <laughs> we, we, we like the richness of the harmonies, I have yeah. to. And, yeah. and also you can dance, whereas when you hear one of those vocalists who are doing the most extraordinary things, it's like, you know, it's a bit like a very long guitar solo or the bass player. <laughs> one, you know, it's like prog rock, isn't it, where the bass player starts, goes off on one, you're thinking, Okay, that's really good, but you know, right. the song's been going for too long, so that's right. amazing. So yeah. yes, so just brief on the book front, when mm -hmm. is this going to, because this is University of Texas, but it's also coming out on Faber and Faber, isn't it? Well, unfortunately, uh, my book is not coming out on Faber, and I don't actually know the reasons why. Um, I think uh, from what I was told, Faber only wanted three titles, from the series and they didn't pick LaBelle for some reason. I'll have to have to do some snooping at Faber about why, because uh, LaBelle just seems like a, you know, you wouldn't have to think too hard about that one. But yes. Um, but I but I think that the rough trade shops will definitely be carrying the book. Right. Uh, and um, yeah, I don't know how many shops they have in England now, but I'm in touch with them and they have my Peter and the Wolves book as well. Yes, so, uh, and yeah. that, that is also an extraordinary publication, isn't it? Oh, have you read it? Well, I've been start, I started look, reading it because I sort of, <laughs> I've been looking at your, I, I sort of found your sort of website and, uh, and then I started sort of realising that, that you're not just, you know, when I sort of realised your career, I was like, oh my God, this is quite extraordinary. And um, <laughs> yes, so, I mean, I guess actually it's all available online now, let's face it, you know. We well, always, it well, if you want to know anything about the Cleveland music scene, which, you know, gave us like uh, Devo and Chrissy Hind and, you know, Perubu and many other bands, that that's probably the book that you want to read. I mean, it's also a very personal and kind of heartbreaking memoir, but it is very passionate about the love for music. And yes, absolutely. No, I, I sort of um, have been checking that out, actually. So... Um, yes, it, it, it's quite something. So you, in the last five years, you've just been absolutely on it, haven't you, with, with working? Yes, yes. I'm in the process of, of uh, another memoir. This one is about getting to New York and experiencing what I found there, this incredible revolution of, of people making art and music. Um, so that's the next memoir. <laughs> Which is and interesting, isn't it? Because actually that hasn't really been sort of... There's been a lot of photographic books I've noticed about New York, yeah. but there hasn't been a lot of um, people who've written about it. Because I've, I've sort of become, I wasn't there, by the way, but I've been fascinated with sort of like all the little layers. There's yeah. been like an onion, isn't it? And you're thinking, oh, that's yeah. interesting. That's, and sort of various characters. Like I said, I found this, this whole thing with the rock cats, you know, this kind of psychobilly band from the UK, Essex, in fact, who sort yeah. of got taken over to New York and and started sort of hanging out with this, you know, that, that you know, getting photographed with Robert Maplethorpe with their, you know, bare chest and tattoos was quite an interesting um. sort of saga. <laughs> but there was, um, yeah, so, so yeah, that would be fantastic. So is that sort of a project that you're working on at the moment, hopefully for the new, yeah, next year? I'm hoping. I mean, what, one thing I've realised about book pub publishing is that it takes forever. From the time you hand in a manuscript until, you know, until the time that it's, checked for you know errors to you know researched for um, blurbs and all all of it the manufacturer the whatever goes into it it can take like two years from the time you turn the book in which is just extraordinary to me i mean with a record you know you you get, you get it out within a month or two after you record it so it's a very very different longer process I, i'm going to try and 
push people along to get it out sooner, but I have to finish it first. So yes, well, I think it's fantastic because actually in the last um, year, you know, Donna Donna Gillespie just brought a book out, and I know Ava Cherry's writing her book, and Cherry okay. Vanilla has has written her book, and um, and there's where, a guy. Pardon? Where where is Ava Cherry these days? Where does she live? She was just on her mobile. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> um, is she remember. in the UK or? No, is... she's she's definitely in. I think she's in LA okay. actually. Okay. But okay. she's writing her book as, as well because you oh, know. Great. So um so yeah. Uh, yeah and Cherry Vanilla she's in Palm Springs I know that and um, um, so she's just got her book out so it's great that people are telling their stories because I think in a way especially in this current climate you know it's been such a weird and horrendous time really and it feels quite sort of like a tipping point so um it's kind of important to sort of get these things out there and published and spoken about actually isn't it oh, definitely. yeah yeah yes. oh yeah just last question which i always love i mean because you, you had a bit more of an extreme life really but if you could have said something to a 16 or 18 year old starting out on your journey and you thought mm -hmm. oh yeah there's a few quite a few bits of wisdom or you might have one bit you know through experience i just wonder what you would have liked to have said to them or could have said to them that you think yeah that would have been quite good you mean if i could say something to people young people now like well it, yes i know that that i'm slightly flawed with that question, question. <laughs> <laughs> so it could be the fact that you know when you were 16 back then and you just wish someone could have said something to you yeah. like the person you are now you could be able to say something back to your Self my old you. self yes. yeah your old don't self drink. <laughs> don't yeah. drink don't do drugs um uh, enjoy enjoy art and music and and try and be your authentic self and don't don't follow the the, the group don't try and you know be accepted into any cliques be brave enough to be yourself and and move to whatever resonates you you know yes I would say and and don't I mean drugs and alcohol can just eat your time in such horrid ways and really at, you know at my age I understand now how time is 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 the most valuable currency your time and how you spend it so I, I would say that that's probably the most important and at that point, we're going to finish it there. That was me in conversation with Adele Berté, finding out about her latest book, Why LaBelle Matters. It's available from, well, it's on the University of Texas Press, Austin. Available from all good bookshops and online. And as we mentioned, she's also got Peter and the Wolves, which is also available online. Anyway, look, this has been David East or The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, make it nice though. Uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, uh, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's it. Anyway, look, have a great day. Stay safe.